You're listening to the Nashville Labrie Conference podcast. In July of 2019, there was a weekend gathering in Nashville with lectures, workshops, conversations, and meals together. The theme of the conference was Being Human in a Fragmenting World. Each episode of this podcast is one of the lectures or workshops from that conference. In order to receive email updates about the podcast, including lecture handouts, articles, and books referenced in the lecture, please subscribe for updates at nashvillelabreeconference.com. This episode features Rob Ludwig. Rob is one of the workers at the Dutch branch of Labrie, and this lecture is called The Return of the Heart, Restoring Wholeness versus Reinforcing Fragmentation. At the start of the, this morning, I, I have a confession to make. Well, two, actually. Uh, one is that, in the end, I'm not really happy with the somewhat clunky and vague-sounding title of this lecture. Uh, this could be about anything, and you're probably wondering what in the world is he going to talk about, and you'd be right. Um, I think I was trying maybe a little too hard to make it fit the theme of fragmentation. And Anyway, what the, what the lecture is really about, actually, and therefore maybe a better title, is why taking our emotions seriously is more than just a changing of the guard. Uh, it's been an important topic to me for a long time, something I've worked on for myself and with many people who've come through Brie in Holland, and I'm happy to share with you about it today. But that brings me to my second, maybe, confession uh, that I've known for some time that I am what could be called a capital R romantic. Not just a lowercase r romantic, you know, like Valentine's Day or promposals or whatever, but capital R romantic. Someone for whom a relationship with truth should carry an emotional attraction and power. Uh, It should pull on you and move you here. Uh, I want to cry at the movies. I want to feel adrenaline when I jump in the cold water. Um, Maybe something for the locals. The smell of jelly worms and old canvas army jackets at Friedman's Army Surplus over here on 21st transports me back to a feeling when the world was open to a young boy looking for adventure. Uh, I I did that Thursday morning, uh, by the way. Yeah. So you get it. For for me, this, this is a live topic. Um, And it has two sides, doesn't it, when it comes to faith. Uh, First of all, the the Christian gospel is a call to a living relationship with living truth. Right? In the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 4, verse 12, we read that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Work on unpacking that for a while. Big statement. And Jesus Christ is elsewhere himself called the word. Logos made flesh incarnate and in his death and resurrection. He's the one who's able to lead others into a new and living way. From Hebrews 10. So clearly the words um, or the message that God has given us has a deep connection connection with and an influence on not just the life of the mind which understands but also the life of the heart which feels and hungers uh, grasps breaks uh, and beats 
It lives. So the gospel says it offers me, among many other things, a chance to know and love my neighbor as myself with a heart. A whole person in a way which I might not be able to do, even just on my own, in my own strength. There is a promise that my heart life will be affected by knowing God through Christ and the Spirit. Something can happen in my life. He who believes in me, Jesus said himself, as the scriptures say, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. John chapter 7. And this is a deep visceral heart here Jesus is talking about. Other translations take it a bit more literally. Uh, Out of his innermost being, it's sometimes translated. Or even more literally, rivers out of his belly, koilias, will flow of living water. If this doesn't get the big R romantic in you, I don't know what would. But, of course then, I'm also very aware of how my romantic heart can deceive me. Uh, Back when I was 10 years old, a friend of mine had a bunch of buddies over for a slumber party. Um, And the big event of the slumber party was that after dark, we would watch the movie Jaws together. Just in case you've never heard of it, young, young types. But right after the film then, we would all go for a dip in his swimming pool with the lights off, right? Ha ha ha, yeah. Well, I remember it like it was yesterday. In my good 10-year-old head, I knew it was a pool. I knew there were no secret tunnels from Green Hills to the sea. There was no snaggly-toothed great white lurking in the deep end to get me. But when I jumped into that water... In the dark, my heart was pounding. I was holding my legs up as far as I could. And in in less than a minute, we were all back out, shaking with laughter and and stress. And one of the most confusing experiences I had ever had. The emotion was stronger in me, even when I knew what was rationally complete nonsense. Um, and, And of course... This is funny, but this kind of thing can be much more serious, can't it? I mean, maybe once upon a time you went into a classroom confident and happy because everybody said things would be great, and they weren't. Maybe you were shamed and scared and scarred by an experience there that you later, it led you to fear any room full of people, safe or not. And the point is our emotions and our our existential experiences have a powerful role in how we know things and how we live. And the trouble is, although they are apparently necessary and we might even say crucial in discovering what's really true, they can also be misled and misleading. And unfortunately, uh, for several years, I've watched uh, friends and strangers reject the Christian gospel Either from the outside, meaning they're not interested, or from the inside, leaving, or as they would say, losing a faith they had known because this integral, integrating connection felt lacking or weak or maybe even non-existent. In their words, the doctrines and the creeds, the teachings and the sermons, the lyrics and the confessions, they spoke to the mind. There was a kind of order there, a kind of cohesion that made sense. In a certain way, but the heart was left cold. Uh, Desires and longings were left unanswered. And as an individual, emotional, visceral person, they didn't feel recognized, seen, answered, 
or loved. And there was an increasing sense that following God and Christ would alienate them from the people and the activities which they cared about and enjoyed most in life. So even when certain doubts or objections could be well answered rationally, this, this disconnect or this fragmentation, if you will, remains and, and nags and tortures until the decision is made. No, no more disconnect. I want to be an integrated, fully human human being. And what I then hear often at that point is, I'd rather just follow my heart. I'd rather just follow my heart. And although that doesn't necessarily mean becoming an atheist, I think convinced atheists are becoming harder to find these days, even in Europe. But it does often mean looking for a guide to life wider and more inclusive than just the Bible uh, or just what we're taught in church. Something that speaks to me more as an emotional person. And more often than not, the growth then is away from an active life with God's word and with Christian fellowship. Something about this then alarms me, but also fascinates me. Because the truth is, it's been said many times this weekend, the gospel truth is that we are built to be in a living relationship with the creator of this world. Who is there and who's not silent. Who knows us and knows how we are built. Whose image we bear. And who loves us and wants us to discover real freedom in our relationships to ourselves, to our environment, and to our neighbors. So if the Christian faith is presented as a set of rules or theories which ignore or feel distant from regular life, or if those who call themselves followers of Christ seem to be people who are alienated from or opposed to the joys and the concerns of what would seem to be a more holistic vision of a human life, then something's gone wrong. And those who feel the need to leave the Bible and Christian fellowship behind are actually missing the point, literally, of the gospel. That Christ came as a savior to save us, yes, but the word savior, soter in Greek, from the verb sozo, does not just mean to deliver or to heal even, it means even more literally to make whole. Um, That's why in some translations when the In the Gospels, when Jesus says, your faith has saved you, some will translate that as your faith has has made you whole. So it's alarming and upsetting that the Gospel could be misrepresented as something less. And we'll come back to this at the end. But it's also alarming, and we'll get into this more in just a moment, because the alternative Gospel of, of just follow your heart, or letting your emotional life then guide you, Because this seems to take you more seriously at the core of who you are or seems to offer a better chance of finding an integrated life to put that in charge. That might actually be the very thing that is hurting us as a culture right now in deep ways to exalt the life of a heart this way. Feelings might be the very thing that's harming our relationships with ourselves, with our neighbors and with our environment. And interestingly, it is. Absolutely not just Christians who are sounding that alarm. Uh, Putting the heart in charge can have serious consequences for how we relate to ourselves, to concrete reality around us, and to other people. And we'll look at a few examples in a moment. So it seems that 
just a changing of the guard and what guides my life may actually leave us in the end more anxious, more alone, and more afraid than ever before. But that brings me to what what fascinates me about this as well. And that's simply the fact that something about the return of the heart is also right. When the gospel is presented as something less than it is, a reduced form that ignores some part of our whole person, something in our hearts rightly rebels. Something says, wait a minute, the word of God is a living truth. It should be penetrating and affecting my emotional existence. And I miss that. Uh, The image of God in me may be calling out for that. Right to be upset. And maybe ironically then, some of this fear and anxiety, which is coming to characterize our time, which has come from following our hearts too exclusively, maybe it's also telling us something. Maybe it's telling us something true. That while it's good to take our emotions seriously, it's dangerous to reduce ourselves unnecessarily to just feeling beings. So it seems we're in a bit of a dilemma. When a return of the heart is combined with a reductive vision of what a human being is, it can get destructive. But the cry of the heart for a more recognized role in things could be a proof of who we really are. So what I want to do is explore this a little bit. Listening to some honest, observant scholars of our own time, not Christians, and then see whether the Christian, the gospel, helps us make sense of that and makes our hearts beat for it. A little bit. Okay? So how, how is the heart involved? Well, I was struck several years ago by a story in this book called The Lucifer Effect by Philip Zombardo. Psychology students here will recognize that name maybe. And yes, it's the same Philip Zombardo who set up and ran the famous Stanford prison experiment in the early 70s in California where a number of Young men volunteered to participate in a role play of prisoners and prison guards. There's been films made about this. You can see things on YouTube about it. It was part of a research project back then in the social psychology department of Stanford. And the goal was to see what effect roles of power and powerlessness would have on the behavior of the participants. The guards were given uniforms, clubs, and sunglasses. Um, And on their shift, they had total authority over the prisoners. Uh, There were a few basic rules. There was a solitary room for penalty time. But otherwise, it was kind of left up to the guards to maintain order. And the experiment was intended to last for two weeks. But within 24 hours, the first signs of abuse of power already manifested itself. Punishments were randomly distributed. New rules were invented especially on the night shift, interestingly. And the further it went, the crazier it got. Punishments became more increasingly severe. The guards began to walk and talk different, with a bit of a swagger. Humiliating games were invented, and before long, some of the prisoners even had to be excused and go home under heavy psychological duress. And ultimately, the whole thing was called off on the sixth day. And why? How did it happen? That day... Some visiting psychologists came to observe what was going on in this experiment. And at that moment, the prisoners were being led in a line with hoods over their heads to go to the bathroom. And one of the visiting psychologists was so shocked and upset, she screamed, What are you doing to those boys? What are you doing to those boys? That cry is the title of the chapter where he explains this in this book. 
And he says, only then, suddenly, he was shaken out of his role as a researcher, back into being a human. The emotional outcry brought him back to the truth that this experiment was unethical, irresponsible, something he'd totally lost sight of in his reductively rational pursuit of knowledge. He was shocked, he was embarrassed, and he was thankful. So thankful he proposed marriage to this woman, and and they got married. (laughs) But what's interesting about the book is on the one hand, maybe not right at that moment, I think, but yeah. (laughs) But the the crucial role then of... of, She did accept, yeah. Maybe a longer story. Um, The emotional response there in recognizing the truth and reality, it's really clear that the crucial role that it plays there. In fact, Zimbardo goes on to say that based on his observations of human behavior, we make a mistake if we too quickly and too easily, he says, believe in the essential unchanging goodness of people. And if we believe in their too highly in people's rational appraisal of and then rejection of temptations. We invest human nature with godlike qualities, with moral and rational faculties that make us just and wise. It's a great mistake, he says. We shouldn't overestimate our rational and moral capacities because we can then easily think ourselves into a position that neglects some important aspect of reality and it can lead to real damage. And it can happen to anyone, he says. He sees himself just as bad as the young men who were the prison guards. Because his calm, rational, basically unemotional, objective mind as a researcher misled him into thinking this was all okay. To use the volunteers as objects and not consider them anymore as real boys, as humans. So the heart has a vital role. Here's the thing. At the same time, Zimbardo goes on um, to say that Just based on his observations, it's also very clear that the human heart itself is severely dangerous. In his analysis of what happened to those guards, he concludes that people can become evil when they are enmeshed in situations where the cognitive controls that usually guide their behavior in socially desirable and personally acceptable ways are blocked or suspended or distorted. And mindfully restrained decisions give way then to mindless emotional responses. So maybe the heart's not so trustworthy as well. And then he suddenly introduces a very strange piece of advice. He says, let's assume that the good side of people is the rationality, order, coherence, and wisdom of Apollo. While the bad side is the chaos, disorganization, irrationality, and libidinous core of Dionysius. And the Apollonian central trait is constraint and the inhibition of desire, and it is pitted against the Dionysian trait of uninhibited pleasure and release. And he goes on to say that what we need in society is to create more rationally ordered societal structures today to keep these unruly passions at bay. And you sense this kind of desperate and naive optimism at the end of this book. A feeling of, please, let's do something um, before circumstances allow our bad urges to get 
the better of us and wreak havoc on society. But I found this very disappointing. Um, after all those good observations about humans, it's very confusing what kind of good news he's trying to offer here. Because first of all, he ignores his own earlier warning, doesn't he? Not to overestimate human potential. Or investing humanity, ourselves, with godlike powers of rationality, which will allow us to overcome evil. He, he warned against that. And now this advice seems to be a fairly direct violation of that warning. But second, it seems weak, I think, to suggest that the guards in the Stanford experiment would have been helped by some level of cognitive control or socially acceptable patterns because that had been established in that small subculture. And even more, as the conductor of the experiment, Zimbardo himself was being very rational. He sat there convinced, observing that this was acceptable. This was in line with his responsibility as a researcher. And in fact, it was the emotional outburst of another psychologist and very passionate confrontation that brought him to his senses. So the problem is that while Zimbardo has noticed the crucial role of the emotional life in recognizing reality and truth, when confronted also with the dangers of just following emotional urges, he falls back on this very old and very unhelpful dualism as a way forward. And for him, this Apollo and Dionysius is not just a metaphor. He's really proposing this as a way to view ourselves. And as a materialist, I suppose he has no other option. He's confined himself to naturalistic sources and humanistic solutions. So he's limited to thinking in terms of these dueling forces in our lives and he's just left having to choose one over the other. So after having defended the role of the heart as crucial to one of the most important moments of truth in his life and after warning us passionately against overestimating the guiding reliability of our rational capacity alone, both very good points, he's at, at the end stuck ends up betraying both of those points with a very simplistic dichotomy and contradictory advice. Well, interestingly, just a few months ago, I find a great improvement on this study, but in the end, a, a similar kind of tension in the more recent work of American psychologist Jonathan Haidt. Um, he's been mentioned already in a few workshops here. Some of his books are available out here. You may have heard of this bestseller last year, The Coddling of the American Mind. It's a very important, very challenging book. And in it, he highlights three bad ideas that have had a very destructive impact on a new generation of Americans, American culture, primarily college-educated 20-somethings. We don't have time to go into it all now. But without being a Christian or having any kind of consciously religious agenda or message, hate more or less preaches against three bad ideas in this book. And the second bad idea he mentions, or the, the second of the three untruths, as he calls them, is the untruth of emotional reasoning. Or, you can always trust your feelings. Because in short, you can't. Right? And if you do, some really destructive and un unnecessary things follow. And his primary focus is on the fact that feeling unsafe doesn't always mean that in reality you are unsafe. And for an American generation that has been raised to think they have a right to cancel or condemn anything that triggers them, triggers in them a feeling of being unsafe, this has led to an incredibly quick culture of anxiety, alienation, division, and even violence. 
And, and the background for this chapter is explained more thoroughly in a previous work of his from 2006 called The Happiness Hypothesis. And that's the book I want to focus on now, The Happiness Hypothesis. And I really appreciate, first of all, that in this work, hate has a much more complex and appropriate vision uh, of the role of emotions in our knowledge than Zimbardo showed. Hate even criticizes the old vision of the calm, rational soul recommended by Plato. Uh, he criticizes the informed, conscious ego recommended by Freud as a key to the healthy life. He even criticizes the trained, mindful spirit recommended by modern Buddhists as all making the same mistake. They see the raging passions as a kind of wild animal to be domesticated or a kind of machine that needs to be tweaked. But listen to this, what he says. The life of cerebral reflection and emotional indifference advocated by many Greek and Roman philosophers and that of calm non-striving advocated by Buddha are lives designed to avoid passion. And a life without passion is not a human life. According to hate, our experience is often, I saw the right way and approved it, but followed the wrong. Until an emotion came along to provide some force. Just like the scream woke up Zimbardo. A quick digression, a little bit into how this works for those who are interested. And I'm just explaining how hate uh, summarizes this process. He says that in our brains, that the hypothalamus is the center of basic drives. The hippocampus is the center for memory. And the amygdala is the center for emotional learning and response. Um, the larger frontal cortex that human beings have, as opposed to other animals, allows more power to reflect, to plan, to choose when it comes to signals of alarm given by the amygdala. In other words, thanks to a large frontal cortex, we can do more than just instinctively respond. And studies have in fact shown that damage to the frontal cortex can show a reversion to sort of behavioral impulses. So maybe we're tempted again to think, oh, there it is again, the old division, right? Now, in, in physiological terms, the, the, the priority of the, the frontal cortex over the amygdala. However, in the 1990s, it refers to uh, research done by a neurologist named Antonio Damasio, who studied people who, because of a stroke, had lost uh, use of parts of the frontal cortex. And strangely enough, these people seemed as a result to lose a large part of their emotional lives. Specifically, they were lacking typical emotional responses to images of beauty and of horror that most of us have. And hate writes about this. They perform normally on tests of intelligence and knowledge of social rules and even of moral principles. So what happens when these people go out into the world now that they're free? From the distractions of emotion, do they become hyperlogical, uh, able to see through the haze of feelings that blinds the rest of us to the path of uh, perfect rationality? Just the opposite. They find themselves unable to make simple decisions or set goals and their lives fall apart. And they were astonished by this. The amount of options these people described was overwhelming at every moment. Uh, with only analysis and reason as a guide, there's an overload of information for these people and they become paralyzed. So, 
To make a long story short, Haidt's conclusion is human rationality depends critically on a sophisticated emotionality. Reason and emotion must work together to function well in reality. It's kind of partnership. It's an integrated dance. It's not just the amygdala responding to the environment and then the cortex reasoning its way through the options. Or Dionysius and Apollo, the the amygdala can even reach up into the frontal cortex, he says, to change your thinking. Primarily by raising emotional filters that, that bias your processing, right? If you've seen a scary movie, it can affect how you jump into a dark pool. Memories are largely emotionally anchored. Even in what some call the subconscious, you look at the world through a filter that interprets ambiguous events as dangers sometimes. Experiences of joy, sadness, satisfaction, or disappointment deeply affect our future reasoning. So it's a more complex picture, right, than the old dichotomy with an important role for emotion. So what does hate then present as the good news? He says that um, though the heart is so important, it should not get the driver's seat. Um, on the cover, there's this image of the elephant with a little guy steering the elephant. That the elephant is the emotional life in, in his metaphor. And among other things, hate appeals to cognitive behavioral therapy as a way forward, since it's a way of tracing certain thoughts or beliefs we have back to a point of an untrue emotional reasoning. And by realizing Certain deeply rooted emotional impulses or memories may not be true to reality. And then realizing maybe that was an isolated event or maybe misinformed. You can retrain your thinking to get back on track. Retrain your emotional life and your reasonable life to work together to respond more appropriately to reality. And here's the thing. Although I really appreciate his effort to get around the old unhelpful dichotomies. And I also believe in his genuine effort to really have a positive impact on our culture today. Moving it away from emotional hijacks without just appealing to cold reason. I still miss something here. What is back on track with reality? At the end of the day, on what ground can I discern which emotional responses are appropriate? And what what reality is? Now for some day-to-day issues and habits, it may not seem to be a real issue. Uh, reality is just daily life. You know, the sun comes up in the morning. Most people stay on the right side of the road, that kind of thing. But even behind social anxieties or a fear of failure, some larger questions of identity, of meaning, of value, they can come up. What's really good? What's really right? What really matters? And here it's interesting what hate says. He says, just like plants need sun, and water and good soil to thrive. People need love, work, and connection to something larger. It's worth striving to get the right relationships between yourself and others, between yourself and your work, and between yourself and something larger than yourself. And then listen to this. If you get these relationships right, a sense of purpose and meaning will emerge. Okay, but this is a big if. Isn't it? What helps me discover what will be a right path in line with reality and truth? Just experiment? So, though it's appropriately more complex than Zimbardo, again, I, I sense an echo of a kind of naive optimism here. And it doesn't take a Christian worldview to see where this kind of 
optimism leads. Already 15 years ago, a French philosophy professor named Chantal Delsol uh, was put on her uh, trail by Dick a couple of years ago. She wrote a remarkable book called Icarus Fallen, where probably to the surprise of some American and English scholars, she is proclaiming the bankruptcy of relativism and particularly moral relativism in France in 2003. Okay? She says that in the French Academy, this was old news in 2003 already. They had already become aware of what people call values, that they're actually just, in her words, a smattering of subjective goods, each of which derives from individual judgment. And they're being put forward with no other criterion than that of the sovereignty of individual judgment. Binding on no one but oneself and can be differentiated only with some difficulty from sentiments, affections, or self-interest. Del Sol's not a Christian. She's not defending any sort of religious or metaphysical position. She simply says this kind of relativism sounds very respectful and freeing. But it doesn't take long in the philosophy of ethics to realize this doesn't fit with reality. She notes already that by 2001, a kind of absolute good was creeping back into public discourse where people were talking about the evils of terrorism and the need to protect human dignity. But there was no deeper foundation for these claims other than just some sense of outrage or basic moral motions. She called it a black market moral code. Uh, It proposes an objective good while at the same time rejecting objectivity of the good. And the problem is that people suddenly want to speak with conviction about morals that are true. True for me and true for someone else. But there's not a clear foundation for these claims. And again, back in 2003, she says this. We think that we don't really need to know why freedom is desirable. Or why humans are worthy of respect. However, to the extent that these certainties are based only on intuitions, we are incapable of really persuading anyone else of their rightness. And listen to this. To persuade opponents of its rightness, an ethical code must refer to its foundations. Otherwise, we're reduced to simply imposing it without argument. We brandish the arms of invective, disdain, repetition, and force, for we simply have nothing else to say. Back in 2003, she saw something coming of a current climate, didn't she? Many others are recognizing the same problem today. There's a fatal contradiction in the relativistic creed that everybody has their right to their own truth based on what they think or especially feel. This simply opens the way for fake news to give rise to another tyrant, for bank bosses to cheat their customers, for factories to ignore environmental concerns, and for bosses to sexually harass their employees. And suddenly, we're seeing this widespread cry for moral universals, or at least some moral law beyond a subjective principle, beyond political correctness, or beyond relativistic freedom. And at the same time, there's this hesitation to ground that in a true moral law, because we're so used to saying there's no such thing. You could say we're urgently sensing somewhere there's a need for a law above us all, but we've forgotten how to bow to it. Del Sol says we're afraid to bow before it. So the result 
she predicts, and I think we see around us, there's a lot of confusion and anxiety led by the heart. The heart that is calling out for moral universals. What are you doing to those boys? But a heart that's scared to give up autonomy because it doesn't want to be ignored or crushed by some kind of universal thing or idea. So what do we do? If we listen to Zimbardo about the importance but also the dangers of the emotional life and we listen to his warning not to overestimate our rational and moral selves. If we listen to hate about the complex role of emotions instead of just resorting to old dichotomies and if we listen to his advice to look beyond ourselves if we listen to Del Sol that looking beyond ourselves may involve a bow a bow that both draws us and scares us we're ready to listen to the gospel of Christianity in short a biblical vision never asks us to commit old dualisms in the most concise summary of God's revelation to humans about the meaning of life found in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, we're told there's a difference in loving God with your head, with your heart, and with your hands, and loving your neighbor as yourself, presumably also with your head and your heart and your hands. But there's not an immediate priority given there in the sense that one's better than the other or more or less dangerous than the other. Just in the use of the word love, we see an honesty in the Bible about the complex mix of ideas, messages, emotions, desires, and memories, which Dick was referring to yesterday, which are engaged when we seek to find and to live the truth. It has to do with love as part of the relationships for which we were made. That will be the core of the direction and the affirmation and the impact we're built to long for. In this world, the drives that were put into us from the very beginning as humans, before there was sin or brokenness, we were built to love. But that word love is a tricky one, isn't it? How do we grasp it better? It's more than just a positive feeling, but also more than just a duty or an assent with obedience. Uh, philosophy professor James Smith, also mentioned yesterday, presents a really interesting angle to this question in the book, You Are What You Love, which Dick also mentioned yesterday. Smith is a Christian, as the title suggests, when it comes to understanding human behavior and growth. He wants to interpret the biblical model of humans as first and foremost lovers. Having noted uh, at the Christian college where he teaches, there have been Several students over the years uh, who, while having been raised with the right biblical teachings and answers, they find themselves then losing their faith as they begin living as independent adults in the world. And in a way, Smith questions whether they have really lost faith in a certain sense, or to put it another way, whether they have ceased to be worshiping beings He sees that the objects of their worship and their love have simply been replaced. It's very active. It's just redirected. And his point is that what they worship and what they believe is ultimately expressed more clearly in what they would say they love. Or maybe what they would discover they love if they look at their habits. Uh, Not just what they confess in a spoken or thought or signed creed, but what they confess in their habits, in their daily choices. There it's revealed in in feeling and in actions what they truly believe about who they are, about how the world works, and about what's important in life. 
And in a way, Smith says this ironically confirms something the Bible teaches us about human nature. Uh, Smith says we've, we've become used to reading the Bible with a bit of Cartesian eyes. I think, therefore, I am. That's why we need to reject the reductionistic picture we've unwittingly absorbed in the modern era. One that treats us as if we're only fundamentally thinking things. And he goes on, and listen carefully. If we assume that human beings are primarily thinking things, who think through every action and make a conscious decision before ever doing anything, then discipleship, and maybe you could even add evangelism, will focus on changing how we think. And the primary goal will then be informing the intellect so that it can direct our behavior. But as he saw with his students, something in this approach falls short. Why? Smith says the problem is that this is a very stunted view of human persons. And it generates, again, a simplistic understanding of action and a reductionistic approach to discipleship. It overestimates the influence of thinking and tends to overlook and underestimate the power and force of all kinds of unconscious and subconscious processes that orient our being in the world. The truth is, he says, that for the most part we make our way in the world by means of an under-the-radar intuition and attunement, a kind of know-how we carry in our bones as lovers, as desiring creatures. Our primary orientation to the world is visceral, not cerebral. Now, Smith goes to great lengths to say, of course, that he's not intending to be reductive again. Um, not intending to step back into this unhelpful dichotomy and just hammer on thinking or rational activity as the problem itself. He says right at the start, to, to question thinking thingism uh, is not the same as rejecting thinking. He says we don't need less than knowledge, we need more uh, instead, we need to embrace a more holistic, biblical model of human persons that situates our thinking and our knowing in relation to other, more fundamental aspects of the human person. Still, I find that some of his language here and there does still sound confusingly more dualistic and reductive again. There's a lot of prioritizing words here. And I don't think Smith really succeeds um, in, in working out how this integrated model looks uh, he resorts primarily to an emphasis on habit and liturgy as a way of correcting and retraining our loves and desires to a correct path. And there's a lot to that. We can talk more about it if you would like in the discussion time. But what role correct teaching plays here or how we receive that, it remains to me less clear in how he works this out. But I'd like to emphasize first in what I think Smith has gotten exactly right. At the core, human beings are worshippers. Just as when we say you are what you eat, doesn't mean you literally become an apple when you eat apples, but what you take in dramatically impacts how you grow and what you become. Perhaps a better title would have been you are what you worship, uh, where we bow to learn and be told what defines us, what is good for us and what is not, what can heal or what can help us. That dramatically impacts how we grow and what we become. Uh, former Dutch library worker and philosophy professor Hank Geertsma has written a wonderful study defining human beings not primarily as homo sapiens or human knowing, but homo respondens, human responding. From the very first moment 
we were called into existence, into being, in the creation story, our very existence has been an existence of response from the moment one. We were called into being, and our existence is a response to that call. We are first and foremost, then he says, responders, you could say, in our nature. We are not gods ourselves, but made in the image of the Creator. And in a dependent, responsive relationship to that Creator, we can grow in our understanding of who we are and learn to love who we are and who our neighbors are with heads and hearts and hands. Because there we find a whole range of what it means to be a person. Relational, communicative, creative, emotional, influential, and so on. God, the Creator God, is the deep root of who we are. He is there and was before we were. He is there, as Schaefer famously wrote, and he's not silent. God has given us also an explanation about who he is and who we are, the relationships we were built for and how to nurture and protect those relationships. The basis of God's law then is not just a list of do's and don'ts to keep the boss happy and to stay out of trouble. It's a description of the relationships for which we were built with God, with ourselves, with our environment and with our neighbors, including strangers, I might add. And how to nurture and protect those loving relationships so that they bring blessing and not curse. Dynamic fruitfulness and not stagnating alienation. So they bring wholeness and not fragmentation. So furthermore, the gospel is not just the good news about those relationships and how they can be repaired and restored and helped by the work of God the Son and God the Spirit. It's a direct offer of supernatural help in that happening. To grow in a love that lives with head, heart and hands. The Savior came to make us whole as it was intended to be. So it should speak to your heart should make it burn within you when you hear it. Because it's touching longings we were built with. As the Apostle Paul preaches in Acts 17, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far From each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. It should find a resonance in what we feel and touch. It's where we started. And it is good news because we're well aware that a lot of the relationships we've been built for are full of curse and not blessing. A human being is a glorious ruin. We've repeated many times this weekend. As Schaefer often said, echoing many other Christian thinkers throughout history. Humanity itself is a glorious ruin, still bearing the longings and capabilities of creatures made in the image of God, still able to find and to build and pass on many wonderful things, but also deeply distracted, broken, corrupted, and destructive in the choices we make. And maybe in what we hear from Philip Zimbardo, Jonathan Haidt, and Chantal Del Sol, it seems the gospel is pretty good news for our moment in particular. Last year I read uh, that a lost sermon of C.S. Lewis had been recovered. Anybody hear about that? A Christmas service, uh, sorry, a Christmas sermon for pagans. Do you hear about this? Published in an old magazine called The Strand in the 1940s. 
I've only seen selections of the text, text but uh, I found it really interesting what Lewis wrote there. He says, in a way, and, and remember this was back in the 1940s when apparently people were already calling the age post-Christian and fearing a return to paganism. That was the big concern in the 40s. Um, Lewis wrote that nothing could be more silly because real pagans carry an awareness of the supernatural order way more than modern man seems to carry. Modern man seems to have lost it, he says. Real pagans are more pre-Christian than post-Christian. Real pagans, according to Lewis, have a true sense of wonder about the world. They see it as alive. Not just as a machine or a collection of resources. Real pagans have a deep sense of right and wrong. There is a real universal moral law. Not just competing ideologies and agendas. Real pagans have a true sense of fear and guilt and sadness about breaking that law. And they invent a wide array of rituals and purifications to take it away. Anything but thinking you're autonomous, autonomously able to write the moral law or save yourself. Real pagans, you could say, were conscious in their worship. And a post-Christian person is not and does not just become a pagan by default. In fact, says Lewis, the post-Christian is cut off from the Christian past and therefore doubly cut off from the pagan past. In Lewis's words, the pagan knew he was up against a living power, capital L, capital P, supernatural. The pagan knew he had sinned, that there is a real right, capital R, and that we failed to obey it. The pagan sensed and saw and felt that our existence here is therefore beautiful and also terrifying for exactly these reasons. And Lewis even seems to suggest it would be good for the West to become a bit more pagan again in the real sense <laughs> as a doorway to the Christian gospel. And I'm wondering, might we be seeing some shades of that today in the return of the heart? Recently, I led a wedding in the south of England where a large number of people present were not Christians from the surrounding villages, but also from the big city. The hosts had wanted to make sure that everybody would feel welcome. So they'd arranged for a kind of happy hour before the wedding uh, on the grounds of this beautiful tiny church, uh, old church with all kinds of food and all kinds of drinks. And the idea was that when the service would begin, everybody could just bring their food and their drinks in with them just to make sure the whole thing wasn't too pious or exclusive or judgmental. Well, I was standing by the door welcoming people in as the time came for the service to start, and a couple of cool guys from London stepped up with beers in their hands. And they looked at me and at their beers, and they said, Are you the priest? And I said, Well, I'm officiating the service. And they said, Is it really okay to bring beer in the church? And I said... You know, trying to be all relatable and winsome. Well, that's the idea. You know, wine served there every week. Ha ha. And they looked at me and they peered through the door and then said with a grin, nah, doesn't seem right, does it? And they left it by the door. Now, there was a sense in those boys who had nothing to do with church people that somehow the house of God deserved a kind of respect. It wasn't rules. It wasn't decorum. I was so humbled by that. I had come to church with gripes and bickers about who's going to be there and what kind of music will be there. But i got to leave that beer by the door. 
There was a voluntary recognition in them of what might be appropriate. It even emboldened me to speak a little more freely in the service about the reality of God's presence and blessing and help that made sense to perform a ritual reflecting those realities, but not just for tradition's sake, but because we're built to be dependent on this creator and sustainer and redeemer. More recently, a friend of mine who's a pastor in an experimental pop-up church in Amsterdam named Rico Forberg made a crazy discovery. Lots of non-Christian artists and professionals attend his gatherings, and he thinks of really interesting things to do with them. And a couple of years ago, he set up a laptop in the center of the group and projected a copy of the Lord's Prayer onto the screen. And during the service, he invited everyone to come up and edit the Lord's Prayer in whatever way they wanted change whatever parts they thought were not appropriate or not true or whatever. And of course, you know, people got at it. They went right to it. Father was changed to mother, was changed to spirit, was changed to spirit within us, was changed to light. And that was just the beginning. But by the end of the hour, my friend took a look. And to his amazement, there was one line in the prayer which nobody had touched. Take a guess. Which line? Shout it out. Forgive us our debts. That was the one. Educated, artsy, young, hip, three generations, secularized, non-Christian Amsterdam. And of course, this was not a clear awareness of sin and guilt before a living God. But it was a deep admission, voluntarily, that as the most developed, intelligent, capable generation of humans on the earth, somehow we are still managing to mess up the environment, reward corrupt business practice, abuse our own bodies, ignore our neighbors, on and on. And there's a sense that we don't stop it and it can't continue. Somebody needs to stop us. Somebody needs to come in and hit reset. Or as one said, restore. Forgive us our debts. Well, there's an element of worship in both these stories. And it should give us both, again, a sense of alarm and fascination. First, the alarm. The openness of the heart to all kinds of false gods and false gospels is serious. A sense that something's out there, larger than we are. It's the root and source of the kick we get from beautifully powerful moments and even simple pleasures. Or it's something we can holler to in a moment of trouble or in a moment of brokenness. Um, This is maybe not all a bad thing, but it has risks. Jamie Smith says, the heart is a hungry hunter. Many gods present themselves to tell me in whose image or in what image I'm made where I need to make sacrifices to find healing and life. And it could sound attractive, whether it's food or work or possessions, relationships, status, impact, adrenaline, whatever. My hungry heart is open to a message that tells me what's the core of my identity. How do I define myself? An eater, a worker, a possessor, a lover, and what the fitting road to salvation is. Many people from Oz, Guinness, to Dick Kyes, to Leslie Nubin, to Tim Keller and others have done great work on helping us identify the idols of our time. So I don't want to go into that now too far. But in the biblical view, each idol appeals to some God-given gift and then elevates that to being God itself uh, to tell us we are made in its image and how to be free. But since those gifts are not God in whose image we really are made, this elevation will actually in the end reduce us to something less than we were meant to be. That's the biblical view. So the return of the heart can be a doorway to many idolatries. But all I want to say here is it can also become an idol in itself. 
If I miss the life of the heart, if I miss an emotional, experiential connection to and an expression of what I say I believe, and in that pain, if I elevate and exalt the emotional life as the key and the touchstone to what I can say is true, I may be taking a gift of God and making it a God in itself. As we've said in the biblical vision, we are relational, dependent beings. The emotions and the experiences we have are given to us as a way of dependently relating to and responding to reality around us. But the moment we elevate those emotions to a higher level of determining what is real or what we say is true, we run a great risk. Instead of responding to reality emotionally, we begin to think we can control it and redefine it emotionally. Both the realities in ourselves, who we are, and others outside of ourselves. And we can't do this. Even the non-Christian authors we looked at are saying that. It leads us to risk ignoring our own flaws. It risks alienating ourselves from anything and anyone with whom we experience conflict or just yelling at them or at worst going to war. So when reality comes knocking, when I'm forced into a confrontation with a real boundary which doesn't agree with what my feelings have proclaimed, if I have no larger framework but myself and my own feelings to place that, if there's no other trustworthy, larger framework before which I can bow, and I realize I can't save myself, then all that's left is fear and anxiety and regret. And maybe that's the plight of the pagan, you could say. And I wonder, in our longing for the return of the heart, an integrated life where emotional impressions and reactions and instincts are taken seriously, we do become vulnerable to idols. But it may also be a sign of who we really are. But we're starting to realize today that simply enthroning the heart has brought us into an era of fear and anxiety and regret. We're not gods. And it may be that we're coming into a more truly pagan moment. I don't know. But then it becomes very interesting to realize what could be better news than a supernatural gospel that cares about the natural world. The good news of Christianity, C.S. Lewis said, was that it added a miracle of which paganism had never heard. That the mighty one came to earth to reconcile us to himself, to ourselves and to each other. The Messiah called to make us whole again, remember, came here to live a life in the flesh, to encounter the full pull on his heart of temptation, just as we do. As it says in Hebrews chapter 4, what temptation? To forget or to ignore or to resist bowing before the true, infinite, loving, creating and saving God whose image we bear. And here we'll close. What does bowing then mean? In Labrie's history, there's a well-known story about philosopher David Hume, whose ideas about skepticism have been deeply influential in Western thinking. Uh, Shortly summarized and perhaps unfairly, Hume proposed that if we don't know everything, then really we know nothing, for sure. And since we can't know everything, well then we can really know nothing for sure. And as the story goes, Hume also wrote that sometimes when enjoying an evening with friends, he couldn't find it in his heart to return to his cold and strained and ridiculous cynical conclusions. Because life told him there were things to enjoy. Reality was knocking. And the image of God in him and the relationships for which he was made were speaking to him. 
And for Francis Schaeffer, this was of incredible importance. But notice this. Schaeffer's response was not that he should just follow his heart. Was it? That the heart should take charge. Why? Because Schaeffer was aware, like Zimbardo and Haidt and Del Sol, that emotion alone cannot lead us to where we should bow. Even Jesus, who said that if we believe in him, rivers of living water will flow from our hearts. The same Jesus said that in and of itself, the things which proceed out of the mouth actually come from the heart and they defile you. Because out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. These are the things which defile you, not just eating with unwashed hands. So Schaefer didn't say the, the heart itself is what saved Hume, or now it's time to follow the heart from cynical dishonesty to reality or something. The heart was calling him, maybe, but to what? And Schaefer said to bow. And this is really important for the last two reasons. First, just as a being, it's really freeing to recognize that we are not gods. We're finite. Uh, The pagan in us knows that. Perhaps increasingly, honestly, in our time, we are homo respondents. And so bowing before God as a creator makes sense. Does this make humans feel small and unseen and oppressed necessarily? Well, just the opposite sometimes. We can admit the things we can't control. And then stand in real freedom, recognizing the limits we have and taking a responsibility and a responsible enjoyment for the territory within those boundaries. One of the biggest lessons I've had to learn in my life is that a boundary always says yes to something before it says no. And that's very true of the boundaries God has said apply to our lives in this world. A boundary is not first and foremost negative. To keep out, to keep away, to keep off, to keep small, to keep down. It always first says yes to something that's being protected or being fed or being cultivated. And saying yes to our our finite but very full lives is very freeing. That brings us to another kind of bow. While, While it may be very freeing and fulfilling in one way, these boundaries may sometimes conflict with what I feel in my heart. And we know the heart alone is not always reliable. So what does that mean? Uh, T.S. Eliot once said, in, in, in responding to art and literature, which often evokes a kind of an emotional response, it was the Christian's responsibility to know two things. He said, to be acutely aware of two things at once as we respond to art. What we like and what we ought to like. He said, few people are honest enough to know either. The first means knowing what I really feel. How it moves me, what it calls up in me, whether I'm proud of it or not. And the second then means considering my shortcomings in that response. Being aware of what God has said blesses and what curses and comparing my response to that law. And this is good advice. If I'm bowing to a creator as the source of my life, the source Of the relationships for which I was built, head, heart, and hands, I can also listen to that creator about the right and wrong ways to protect and nurture those relationships. In a way, this makes so much sense of what Zimbardo and Haight and Del Sol were telling us. We need to bow to a creator as a source also means bowing for correction. And remember, the creator in the Bible is not just a judge, but a savior. We'll come back around to that. And not just a savior, but it says in Hebrews 4, a savior who sympathizes with my weaknesses. 
Because he's experienced the temptations himself. All the pulls on the heart to ignore and resist bowing before our source of life. He sympathizes so I can come to the throne of grace without shame or fear. So bowing and asking for real supernatural help in this way will not just make me feel dirty or small or irresponsible. Just like bowing before the creator allows me to stand proudly in the finiteness that fits me. Excited to explore it. Bowing before the Savior brings me sympathy and cleansing and the freedom to stand up and learn. Mistakes matter. They deserve an answer. But the gospel is clear. The point is not just death to pay a price. It's a resurrection to maintain life. A raising up to continue to walk and grow and learn by correction without a fear of condemnation anymore. So the biblical image of bowing always includes this amazing image of standing up. It's always implied Inside it, standing up as a properly proud image bearer, finite of an infinite God, being renewed and all the built in capacities for all kinds of relationships to be explored and cultivated. Search me and know me, the psalmist says in Psalm 139. Help me see how I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, including my emotions. Help me recognize the relief in letting go of the things that are too high for me to grasp. Help me see where I'm walking without God, literally on the path of pain, trying to be something I'm not, and set me on the eternal path, the new and the living way. If I'm wanting a return of the heart in my life, I should not just see it as a changing of the guard, putting emotions in charge. Even non-Christians see where that leads, to a society whose bankrupt relativism has left us yelling at each other in fear and anxiety. I should see it as a pagan call to bow. To recognize the finite image bearer of a true creator in me. And to bow before that being. Not just in fear. But recognizing that I'm built by him to love and to live with heads and hearts and hands. And when fear comes, because I do see where I've fallen short in that love. To bow again. And ask for the help he's happy and able to give. So let's take the return of the heart rather as a picture Schaefer has summarized in the book True True Spirituality. It's the redeemed human being as a unity who now stands before the personal God. It's not just one part. The will, the mind, the emotions, all are involved. The complete person as a unit involved in this moment-by-moment reality of the work of Christ in our present lives. I'm called to believe God To believe him, not just when I accept Christ as Savior, but every moment, one moment at a time after that. This is the Christian living. So may you all know and feel this reality. May rivers of living water stream from your hearts to bless the world we've been given. Amen. doing on time good Uh, first I just quickly want to say if you would like any of this material uh, I also have an English version of the long study Hank Kirtzma did on homo respondents or any of slides or whatever feel free to email email me if you have other questions about Dutch Labrie I do all the correspondence at the office there so remind me who you are and, and feel free to be in touch um, or if you have other questions you'd rather not do in the session here I'm hanging around today still and digitally available. All right.
I just want to open it up then. What, where, where do you guys want to take this? Things to add, adjust, ask? Yes. Uh, first of all, we were like a charismatic church. I probably would have said amen a thousand times. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And um, so, uh, you pointed out something about almost like a resurgence of what maybe we call modern paganism, where people, like you mentioned, the guys at the church bring the beer, and they had a emotional response to that, the inner sense of that, that strong. Um, I read in, uh, was reading in uh, Echoes of Exodus this morning about freedom from something. It also has to be freedom to something. Uh, and, and so there, there can be a misconnection, I think, modernly. And I've seen something represented where uh, it's almost a, uh, an acceptance of brokenness, but an affirmation of brokenness. There's a modern pop song of I'm broken and it's beautiful, rather okay. than... I'm broken, but I'm beautiful. I'm broken, and it will be beautiful. It's, it's a rejoicing in the brokenness itself. Yeah. And I wonder if you've seen that problem, or what you might respond to that, to the dangers of that kind of uh, thinking. And, and, and to not rejoice in the brokenness. And what, what are some of the dangers that we can be more mindful of culturally, as that seems to be happening yeah. as a response to that modern paganism? Great question. Wow. So how do we think about uh, what you've observed, Rob, in um, people being more open to sort of embrace fragility, insecurity, brokenness, and, 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 and maybe leaving it there? Is that what I hear you saying is the danger? Sure. Yeah, my, my kids all follow, I have teenage, four teenagers at home, and they all follow certain YouTubers, and we were quite amazed recently that uh, of sort of the original first generation of influencers on YouTube uh, to kind of stay at the top recent, quite recently all of them needed to have what was known as the breakdown blog that they had to kind of confess ooh, trying to keep up this life of impressions and everything has led me into a burnout and I had to take two months off in, in Bali and here are the pictures by the way but you know that, <clears throat> you know but, oh, you know, without makeup and the messy background, I, I'm a real person, you know. And it, it became a trend to stay in the top. You kind of had to have the breakdown blog. And so what is this celebration of, of, of this finiteness? Well, as, as with a lot of movements or trends, um, sometimes there's maybe what, what Schaefer might have called sort of a, a, a resurgence of the image of God in people and the finiteness of humanity that sort of asks for attention at a certain moment. and Maybe there would be a way to interpret it as that. Um, but again, it could be a corrective. And just like when you detox from something or you're in a rehab setting, there's, there's a clinical reduction of life that allows you to be a certain way and maybe be weak and vulnerable for a time, which is meant to be a phase that then brings you beyond that to taking a, a bigger step of responsibility, a wider view, and to want to grow back into normal life and society and grocery stores and social settings, then maybe it'd be thinking positively okay to see this as sort of a, a detox moment, but it will need its challenge to grow at a certain point. I remember there was a there was a song that was out not too long ago, and somebody's gonna have to help me with the band. But it was, I think the song was even called "Weak." 
I'm weak. And what's wrong with that? Who can help me out? Huh? AJR. Good. They look to me like Beastie Boys 2.0. These guys out of New York on the subway. But if, if you watch the video, it's really interesting that what sounds like, well, I'm just acknowledging my weakness, you know, what's wrong with that? But if you watch the video, it's astounding. It's a picture of a, of a struggle with addiction. And he's saying, there's a lot wrong with that. But I'm stuck. I don't know what to do because I'm being called to recognize my dependence and vulnerability and brokenness. But what then? What's the reentry into life, growth, and moving forward? And maybe that's the place where a biblical worldview begins to... Uh, Schaefer also wrote uh, elsewhere that the Christian gospel is the only system that acknowledges why human beings have a right to begin with themselves in thinking about these things, but then also have a directional given to understand in what direction to begin inching along because it is set in a framework. So I would just say be ready to explain why, yeah, we're finite, why, yeah, we make bad choices, but why, yeah, we can even have a self-awareness to know that that's not good and the longing for growth on another path needs to be freed from perfectionism and freed from other kinds of pressures. And And the gospel offers good hope for that too. There would be loads more to say about that, but it's an interesting observation. And maybe good to, to welcome it, but then say, okay, and? You know, the whole movement of accept my imperfection and Brene Brown and all that, you, you can already see this is kind of reaching a saturation point. Okay, it's okay to be imperfect. Now what? You know, all, all the moms sitting around at Barnes & Noble agreeing we're all imperfect, and now what? Right? Okay, where does it go? So, where does it go? That's good. Yes, I want to go back to earlier in your talk where you were talking about the phenomenon of the deconversion where the person says, my hand's been accounted for, but my heart hasn't been. Sure, right. And right before we left to come here, a friend of mine and I, and by extension another group of people, were talking about some of the profile deconversions we've seen. Okay. Uh, Josh Harris, Derek uh, Webb, right? Okay. And one of the guys noted that this seemed to happen in a similar phase in life. Hmm. certain age right? and it left me wondering if there's something there now there's a spectrum of the influences that are playing into that but is there a constitutional or a developmental or, or like a, a liturgy of life that kind of comes at that early to mid 40s that pushes us to a place where the return of the heart feels real powerful and maybe we don't have resources to deal with it or we it just sets us up for a place to, to break. Hmm. How old are you? Uh, close enough to be worried about. All right, good. <laughs> just checking. I, I would love to say it's all nonsense, it's all cliche, midlife crisis is no biggie. Um, but I can't. I'm 49 and have five years ago, happy to say, had a severe dip on this level. Four kids, beautiful wife, meaningful work, um, lots of gorgeous things happening and still a kind of anger that bubbled up out of nowhere. It was, what is going on? It's, it's time for me. And it was not rational. It, you could know it was not right, but it, it was not quiet. Um, 
And I think in a way, maybe like this other question, in the end, there were, it wasn't nonsense either. There were things that had to be asked and said uh, at home to myself. Um, I, of course, first went around blaming everybody and everything else, especially my wife, for, for everything. And that in those conversations, which she graciously and patiently endured <laughs> to a point, and uh, <clears throat> to say, okay, there are some acknowledgments of frustrations that are probably true. There are mistakes that have been made, this and that. There, it was an okay as an alarm. Um, and I guess I have to be honest to say there wasn't really a, a key breakthrough that took it away. I, I was recently interviewed on a Dutch radio show uh, about this question, and uh, I suddenly said in the, in the interview there was something to it that was a bit of a zielschriep, which means in Dutch a, a flu of the soul, that it's, it's like a virus. It, there wasn't really a medicine. That, it, you, there are a lot of things that can keep you from getting worse, but it, it seemed like a phase. And, but the, the thing that was important about it was that before myself and my environment and my relationships and my friendships and, um, and before God, of course, I had to acknowledge, okay, we, we're here where we are. Honesty has been reached. The, the noise has been filtered out. Things are not perfect. Maybe things could or should have gone differently, but here you are today. What do you say yes to today? And for all the questions you have had maybe about how things have gone and rolled onto, into, and been upset about, here you stand. What is it now? And to sort of take responsibility and ownership for this day, if there was anything, knowing I'm finite, knowing I'm an image bearer, knowing that these feelings were not nonsense, but they definitely needed to be checked, search me and know me, see where I'm walking on, path of pain, set me on the eternal path. This was a live prayer um, to really address that. I will add, listen again to Anna's lecture. I had also tried to do it much too much alone, this. And friends are key in this discussion. Not just to identify and, you know, break beer cans on your head with, but to, <laughs> sorry, this is starting to sound like it's just a male problem. It's not, but I think it is, it's, uh, it's a current one that's getting a lot of attention. But uh, to really challenge each other too. Make sure you got friends who understand. Yeah. Would you say in that soul virus, which is a wonderful term, hmm. was your faith kind of freshly in your mind, like am I still holding to this? Or was it relational conflict that you were primarily experiencing? You mean that it... Oh, oh, I'm sorry, because that was really the original part of your question. Um, I think... Hmm. Well, I can speak for myself, but I, I, I know I've heard others who said um, the, the church community can't offer me any help in this, therefore I will leave. My prayer life is not helping me in this, therefore God isn't there or doesn't care. I just need to find some other way to deal with it. Um, whether that's help or whether that's just leaving and going nuts, um, another way to deal with it. Um, I, I would say that it didn't ever leave my mind that God was there as someone to interact with. But it was a discovery, again, afresh, that there's a difference in acknowledging your complaints and difficulties and angers about faith from within the relationship and doing it from outside the relationship. I've always been touched by what Schaefer wrote about the second response of Jesus to the second temptation in the wilderness. That when he says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God in this way, or test him. He's 
Schaefer says it's a reference back to Exodus chapter 17, where the people of Israel are thirsty and want water. And there's nothing wrong with wanting water when you're thirsty. But they test the Lord, it says in that chapter, because they said, is the Lord now with us or isn't he? And so the attitude was, no matter what you've done in the past for me, Lord, you've got to prove from ground zero that you're there and exist and are for me by giving me water today. Otherwise, I'm out. And on the other hand, there is a way to test the Lord from within the relationship and just say, how long and what is this and what's going on? So I, I, the deconversion phenomenon, it doesn't happen in, in Europe because... People say, oh, I guess that was for our grandparents or something. But it's, it's the, a more thoroughly secularized place. And this seems like a very almost, um, in, in the eyes of some people, is something that's almost a bit adolescent as a reaction. But I, I think it would be very important for such people to realize this kind of fight and this kind of anger has a place inside the relationship with God and to explore that first and to find fellow Christians who understand that, and for us to be the kind of friend that understands that to those people, to explore that before saying the only alternative is to get out. Um, but that probably needs a lot longer conversation and depends a lot on particular people's reason. Does that help a bit? Yeah, yes, thank you. Sure. How are we doing time-wise? Do we have one time for one more? Yeah. One more. Who will it be? Hands up. Yes. That's <clears throat> here. Um, I couldn't help while listening to your talk of just this image of like a precious base that has been cracked and broken and or missing parts, but like this idea that we were it was always made to be whole, like not separated and segmented into hmm. the heart and the mind and, the spirit, hmm. and hmm. it was always meant to be one thing originally. And that got me thinking about the doctrine of divine simplicity and I thought is would you say that that the, the things that you're talking about, but uh, bringing these things together, is almost our human reflection of that idea? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, revisit the workshop of Dave about Leonard Cohen's song as a, as an addendum to what I'll say now. Um, the the attraction of simplicity, I think, is so important because Jesus was didn't resist the temptation to simplify things when he was asked, what is it? What's the core? He summarized it with an old summary God had done long ago in Deuteronomy about love. Um, What I think is beautiful about biblical truth is that, in a sense, simplicity doesn't mean reduction. So I'd be very careful sometimes for the temptation to say, oh, simplicity will just sort of narrow things down to one key, one essence, one principle, and that'll save it, right? It'll, it'll declutter my house or whatever. Um, but maybe simplicity in the sense of just being clear. Um, to say we should love the Lord with our heart and our mind and our strength is a nice, concise summary. But if you actually start to flesh that out, it's enormously complex. And it invites application in a million different forms um, and, and contexts. So 
uh, I, w I would never want to say that you know the, the the simplicity of a glass prism means that only one color of light comes out of it. That the the simplicity can invite a, a beauty of richness in a tapestry that is really appropriate to reality because uh, reality isn't that simple. But the idea that the the answer can be clear and can be fit, and I think Jesus definitely was doing that with it with a pretty simple answer to. Uh, the question, what's at the core? Yeah, yeah and, and my thought being, can we have a true emotionality without it being connected to uh, a rationality, being connected to, like, are these things... That's a good, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Perfect point. I mean, when do you have an emotion without a thought? I mean, in a way, the, these sort of temptations to sort of compartmentalize and, and fragment... Are, are in a way a very scientific activity which can help for study but you always have to re-enter reality and in the integrated complex whole you're right absolutely yeah, yes dichotomy. yeah they're great false dichotomies it's the best and most fun thing to hunt for isn't it false choices <laughs> i love hunting for false choices yeah good great uh, other questions and stuff we can just find me coffee breaks lunch wherever and if you have more questions about coming to Libri I'm going to go ahead and pitch there's a workshop about that coming up now Nikayla and Sarah and I will be there to tell more about anybody who has questions or ideas about what Libri is how to go where to go what happens there thank you for your interaction thanks for listening for more information and updates about future conferences sign up at NashvilleLibriConference.com Special thanks to the Rabbit Room Podcast Network for their know-how and hosting of this podcast. You can find their podcast network at rabbitroom.com. And a special thank you to my friend, Drew Miller, for providing the podcast music. You can find more about his upcoming albums, Desolation and Consolation, through his website, drewmillersongs.com.